The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, your busy business boss, executive, strategist, and transformational leader, whose mission on this show is to educate, engage, and energize the global community on topics of sustainability and ESG. Hi, folks. As you know, I like to introduce my audience to other shows on the Oil & Gas Global Network. And today, I want to connect you with my fellow podcaster, the fabulous Elena Melkert, and her show, Oil & Gas Upstream. Recently, Elena was at OTC and caught up with Scott Angel after he gave a talk titled Balancing Energy Transition and Production. Scott has the distinction of being the nation's longest-serving director of the U.S. Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, and he is the founder of USA Energy Workers. Both his and Elena's years of service to our industry in this country are admirable, and I am certain you will enjoy this conversation that I'm making available to you here, given its relevance to us here at ESG Energized. Enjoy. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded a small oil and gas consultancy, and became a podcast host. I'm so excited today for our guest. Our guest is Scott Angel, founder of the USA Energy Workers. Scott, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, it's absolutely amazing to be with you, Elena, after a very long and distinguished career serving the public, that you would take that expertise and continue to serve those of us who are passionate about American energy. And to be in the energy capital of the world here, right, at, at the world's largest offshore technology te- technology conference in Houston, Texas, amazing. It's great to see you. You look great. You're doing great things. So good to be with you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, and we are recording live here at the uh, 2023 Offshore Technology Conference. Okay, well, well, Scott, you know, you and I worked together a little bit when we were both in government service. Why don't you tell everyone what you did, you know, what you're doing now. I'd love to get caught up with you. It's great to share my story. you know, I've been very fortunate to have a great career serving others and really dedicated most of my career, both at the state level and the federal level to energy exploration, energy production, safety, those kind of things. Because I absolutely believe that American energy is one of the things that have given us uh, some really great advantages as we uh, built this country in the aftermath of World War II and became the world's first superpower. One of the things that was very important was American energy. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to, to be a change agent, make things better, hold people accountable, hold myself accountable, uh, and work with great, amazing people. And, and we did some good things. One of the things I think that's really, really amazing is that the Government Accountability Office, the, the nation's uh, kind of 
fact-based, nonpartisan uh, accountability office, looked at what we did during my time. I inherited an organization that that same GAO had put uh, Bessie or oversight of federal offshore on his so-called watch list. And through my term, we were able to, uh, because of the efforts, uh, work off of that list. And a great gift to the American people that uh, federal oversight of offshore oil and gas is no longer on, on the bad list, if you would. So, yeah, so good so, things. So, Scott, uh, you uh, were the director of the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, Bessie, the regulator for offshore oil and well, offshore energy, right. but uh, oil and gas production is what we we're what we we're talking about here. And you were the longest-serving director for Bessie. Is that? Yeah, you know, Bessie's been through in the aftermath of Deepwater Horizon. Right, uh, right. You know, there were quite a few. There's, there wasn't a lot of stability there, so folks would come in and maybe perhaps not stay for a long, long time. And when I made a when I was recruited and asked to serve, I made a commitment that we were going to do it for the entire term. Uh, and you know, there were some difficulties there because my family was still in Louisiana. Uh, but at the end of the day, I didn't go over there to make friends. I went over there to make a difference. And, and we did. Uh, you know, in 2019, we proved in 2019 the following, that we had the highest offshore oil production in the history of the country. And we had among the safest uh, performance and environmental environmental performance. So uh, just, you know, one of the things that I think people fail to realize is how safe, when we measure safety in terms of number of incidents per say 200,000 man hours, uh, I think Elena, even people in the know would be surprised to hear that for several, several years, offshore exploration and production is the second safest high hazard industry in America, oh. second only to nuclear power generation. And wow. we know that nuclear power generation has zero margin for error. Right. And offshore safety has very, very small margins for error. And, and the industry has responded, the men and women have responded, and it, it's a good thing. And, and, I, and I think we, we showed that we, we're, we're a nation that can do more than one thing at one time, right? right? We can have safe operations and we can have environmentally sustainable operations and we can have robust production. Yeah, and your uh, work included uh, international presence with other regulators in the offshore arena, and so um, and oil and gas. So, would you? How would you characterize our standing in the world with respect to our safety standards? Yeah. So you know, look, I think after the the Deepwater Horizon event, there was a a lot of uh, a, a review, if you would, of what other provinces uh, were looking at and doing, and and so. The government went out, I think, and looked at some of the other provinces and uh, took best management practices, you would, revised some regulations. Some of them uh, missed the mark. We came back, we believe, and hit the mark with some revisions to that. Uh, but but I can share with you, when I visit with uh, international energy companies, uh, they, they, they were always uh, encouraging us at Bessie to be uh, that world leader uh, through... Uh, maybe the Arctic Council or maybe through IOGP or some of the other international regula 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 re regulatory forums uh, because I think they, they had come to believe uh, that what America was doing was in fact the best um, and, uh, and that we needed to export uh, our thinking and our 
inspection protocols and those kind of things to other countries. But you know, at the same time, I think we always kept an open eye that uh, we didn't have a monopoly on great ideas. I think we, we put together some really good things, but it's always good to pay attention. Uh, you know, I'm kind of impressed with some of the things that came out of the North Sea, and, and we can always learn as long as we exchange in. Uh, but uh, you know, America is expected to lead on all fronts, and we certainly did that at Bessie during my time. We did, absolutely. And so, so what are you doing now? I mean, yeah, so a couple of things. SPE, like, I mean, uh, OTC, I know that you're speaking on a panel today, balancing the three E's, is that what it, that's? Yeah, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I kind of, I think, recognized uh, in my time as a regulator, that the worker was missing from the conversation. Right. And let me say that one of the things that I feel very, very strongly about is my appreciation for the agriculture industry in this country. To me, they've done an amazing job the agriculture industry does an amazing job. Even though much of agriculture is owned by corporate America, the agriculture policy makes the farmer the centerpiece of the conversation, okay? Right. And, and there's a reason for that, because America loves their farmers. And America loves people who work and, outside. And those of you who don't speak Louisiana, right. <laughs> farmer. Right, F-A-R-M-E-R, -E right? <laughs> and for those who are linguistically challenged, right? Uh, didn't get it there yet. But, but the agriculture industry has done a really good job of making sure that the farmer is sitting at the table. And, and again, America loves their farmers. America loves uh, the folks who put on uh, khaki pants and work boots to go to work. So right. I noticed that was missing from the energy conversation. So I decided when oh. I left government to form and launch something called USA Energy Workers to elevate and celebrate all of our energy workers. Yes, certainly the oil and gas, but the nuclear, the wind, the solar, uh, all of the renewables and alternatives, because at the end of the day, if you really take a look, uh, Elena, this is a very important statistic. We've had six recessions in this country from 1973 yeah. to 2019. Yeah. Each one of those recessions were immediately preceded by a spike in energy prices. Oh. And as goes America's access to affordable, not cheap, but as goes America's access to affordable energy, right. so goes our economic performance. Right. We sell more cars right. when right. we have affordable energy. We build more homes when we have affordable energy. The retail industry is healthier, travel and leisure. So in a lot of ways, as so goes energy, so goes America. And, and so in my mind, if we know that, if we've had six recessions from 73 to 2019, and they've all been preceded by uh, a, a spike in energy prices, even I know that that's a trend, right? Yeah. And so we don't need to study a whole bunch. We just to try to, I think, avoid that. And the way to best avoid unaffordable energy prices is to look at America's energy resources. It makes no sense to me that in this country, we would pause and cancel offshore lease sales at the same time ask OPEC countries to increase production in the name of the environment when our environmental record is better. Yeah, that, that hurt a lot of people, especially here as we are at the uh, Offshore Technology Conference. That was very a very real impact. Yeah, and you know, it's unfortunate in the, in the impact, you know, begins the domino and we, we've kind of seen what has happened when you vilify an industry that's so important and when you unplug or attempt to unplug one of your major sources of energy uh, in favor of another source, but that, that next source is perhaps not yet ready to step up, there's pain at the pump. And pain at the pump leads to incredible things. And so what our country has in a sense done is in order to get, you know, 
inflation under control, and the experts tell us that they believe that about 40% of the inflation that we experience is caused by high energy prices because it has this rollover effect, and we all know what's happening with food inflation, again, driven by diesel prices and, and things like that. And so, you know, we just fundamentally believe that the pain at the pump is, is unnecessary, uh, we believe that instead of raising interest rates, instead of increasing interest rates, we ought to increase domestic production to lower American energy prices to make them more affordable. Oh. And that would, we believe, help tame inflation, have robust employment opportunities for everybody. And so, you know, I, I don't know what happens in you know, Q4, many of the experts suggest that by Q4 we'll maybe be in a recession. I don't know, and I guess speculation is what it is. But what I would say is that energy prices for the last year have been too high to have a really, really solid economic performance. And the way to, to correct that is to unleash the innovation, the dedication, and indeed the perspiration of our USA energy workers. And let's look inside Let's look into our country as opposed to looking to OPEC to increase production. Increase the perspiration of our energy workers. Wow, people people want to work. People want to make a contribution. And I'll, look, I'll steal toe boots and our uh, hard hat wearers. Uh, you know, we've looked at, you know, every generation has its challenges, right? So, look, whether it's uh, coming out of a world war, it's coming out of a uh, Great Depression, it's coming out of a pandemic, uh, whatever it is, every generation has its challenges. I would say that one of the challenges of our generation is to, uh, is to, is to improve the environment without wrecking the economy. Right, right. 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 And so, you know, I, I, I come from a family where we love our woods and our waters. I, I certainly believe I'm an environmentalist by that definition uh, and want to do good things. Um, and so this idea of balancing the three E's, I, I, somehow, somewhere in America, the red states uh, became centered around one of those E's called energy. The blue states became centered around another one of those E's called the environment. But there's another E, and it's not red, and it's not blue. It's really, really bright purple, and it's called the economy. And it has an overlap, right, of red and blue in right, that purple. Right. And so it, if you kind of think of a three-legged stool, and you think of those three E's representing each a leg, economy, environment, and energy, they have to be balanced in order for the stool not to fall. And some of the policy decisions I think that we're kind of going through in this country suggest that we're getting out of balance and you see what has happened with the price of energy. And again, who can afford it, right? The single mom going across town, the senior citizen who's living on a fixed income. I made a presentation, I think it was at a Georgia radio station uh, in February of 2022, saying that I think you will begin to read articles about people who are gonna have to make choices, senior citizens making choices between uh, high prescription costs and paying the utility bill. And it showed up in a zip code near you. Right, right. So, um, so energy as a fuel, there's also energy as a feedstock. Yeah, so, so many products, right? 6,000 everyday products, right? And so to those folks who say we ought not be using it, uh, you know, I say, uh, oh, you know, you have the right to that opinion, but uh, I need to see your works, not your, not your words. And, and your works would be just to lay down your use of those 6,000 everyday products. Oh. And, 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 and see, and, and then maybe call me in the morning and tell me, well, no, you can't call me in the morning because you need a phone to be able to call me and you need, you need those, the, the, the energy to maybe to make it work. So, right. uh, you know, look, we're out of balance. There's no doubt we're out of balance. And, and, and I think we are, all we have to do is look to Europe. 
Europe went down a road where they were going to try to go from point A to point B in a snap. And it has uh, not worked very well. I and saw where the European Union, this is an interesting point, not to cut you off, but the European Union was looking at the definition of what energy sources they were going to allow in their green definition. And their first cut at it, the decision, was not to include natural gas. They were going to exclude natural gas from their uh, green definition. And, you know, the economy started falling apart in Europe and prices started going a little uh, sideways. And they revisited that and said, no, no, we're going to let we're going to let natural gas back into uh, the, the, the definition. I think it was the right second decision to make. Uh, but I would say that the molecules didn't change. The science didn't change. The politics and the economy changed. And that's what drove it. And we ought to be aware that, look, energy has to be affordable. It has to be affordable. It's not affordable. And, and again, don't take my words for it, but I, I read an article recently where the CEO of BP, uh, who is a very, very bright guy, done an amazing job, he's come out and said, and I'm paraphrasing, but the headline was like, more oil and gas investment, better for the climate fight. And why did he say that? Because if we reduce supply without reducing demand, that leads to price spikes. And price spikes leads to economic volatility, and that volatility leads to usurping the transition. And so we just need to be smart, and we need to plan it, and we need to take smart steps. And so when I take a look at offshore, Elena, I'm very, very passionate about offshore. Yeah, you are. You know, when you take a look at the statistics, the Gulf of Mexico production has the second lowest carbon intensity production per barrel in the planet, and has among the lowest uh, methane uh, flaring and venting metrics. We only flare about 1.25% of, of our gas that's measured to produce gas. The Gulf, and there's a reason for that, because we got this robust pipeline system in the Gulf of Mexico. We don't have to flare and vent. We can take it to market. Simply said, the Gulf of Mexico is just an amazing, amazing federally owned resource, publicly owned resource, that all the metrics, and again, I have a quote right here just to share with you. Again, don't take my word for it. In November 2016, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management released a report, and this was under the Biden-Obama administration, and they released the following re uh, report. You know, I'm quoting, United States greenhouse gas emissions would be higher if BOEM were to have no lease sales. Emissions from substitutions are higher due to exploration, development, production, and transportation of oil from international sources being more carbon intensive. So this federal report, Why? public report said that this is gonna increase United States gas house emissions. But that's precisely what this administration did, said no, we're gonna start pausing and canceling lease sales and, and putting people who sound like me, Boudreaux and Thibodeau on the bench, right? And asking for people that, you know, employed through OPEC to produce more production. So it's really ironic, it's awkward, it's unnecessary, it's causing too much pain in the pump, our economy is suffering. What do we do? We raise interest rates and now make it so much more difficult for such a broader group of people. Very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, just back to your point about uh, energy choices and the fact that we actually had a, or I should say Europe, had a warmer than expected winter. Um, what would have happened had the U.S. not been able to provide the LNG that, you know, supported them during the time of, of need. So yeah. it's definitely... And so, we again, we have another, just again, going back to the farmers, we have another opportunity here. You know, on the strength of our farmers, we have fed the world. Yeah. And by doing so, we have spread freedom, mm -hmm. 
and democracy and freedoms of religion and by bringing the American values to folks, right? And our farmers have, the, the, our farmers do a whole lot more than feed us. They really, really do help bring stability to the globe. So we believe at USA Energy Workers, we can take a page out of that book and not only just feed the world, we have opportunity to fuel the world. Yeah. And how do we do that? One of the ways we do that is recognizing that the European Union no longer wants to get its gas from Russia, and 40% of their gas came from Russia at one time. We can do that through LNG, liquefied natural gas, incredible opportunities, certainly here in Texas and Louisiana, who, who understand and want to be those host states. But these are freedom molecules. These are molecules that, that allow us to, 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 as my good friend Mark Menzies, the former Deputy Secretary of the Department of Energy, uh, said, I think, in front of Congress, these are freedom molecules. And so we have an opportunity to take, if you would, an American worker who's going to create a job, do better for his family, uh, pay taxes, uh, use U.S. production, where the, the, the country gets royalty benefits from U.S. production. Those royalty benefits, uh, royalty income is, is dedicated to, to the, the greatest uh, bipartisan conservation legislation in 50 years called the Great American Outdoors Act. So we drill a well in the Gulf of Mexico. Again, it would start from the beginning. We had really, really good uh, environmental metrics there, really, really good climate metrics there. The government creates a, a, a revenue stream. That revenue stream goes into taking care of our, our parks and those kind of things, our, 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 our national forests, our wildlife refuges. We create the jobs, we take the LNG, and we ship it to our friends in Europe. We spread the strength of America when we do that. We make the world safer, we employ people, we make the planet safer, and we make the planet healthier because we all know that the carbon intensity of production in the Gulf of Mexico is just so much better. And it, it, again, it, the metrics are so clear. Uh, we, we start to believe at USA Energy Workers that there is something nefarious uh, at play here. Never since the days of prohibition have we seen such a, a industry that's been vilified, right? It's just, it's, 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 uh, and it's so important. And, you know, Elena, you and I are fortunate enough that if the price of, uh, you know, gasoline goes up, uh, we're going to be okay. You and I are going to find a way to be okay. Uh, but there's a lot of folks who struggle, and we marry to our climate-controlled homes, and we marry to our automobiles. We often live in places we do not work, so we got to have them. So what happens? We start cutting out other things. And the other things that we cut out, again, retail travel, uh, automobile purchases, home construction, all those things start suffering and you start to see some of those numbers showing up right now. Yeah, yeah. I was in uh, California recently. I'm from California, visiting family and, and also for business. And um, the price of gasoline was pushing on $7. And, um, you know, people that I know in the oil and gas sector in California are saying that it's ending uh, through policy. Uh, and that to supplement the need for fuel um, that California is importing like 60% of its oil. And I just thought that didn't make sense to me because California used to be the third largest oil and gas producing state in the country, right? Only after only Alaska and Texas. And, and now it's like importing such big numbers. And it's reflected at the pump and it's a big state that, that depends on, you know, vehicles. Yeah, and you know, I, look, I, I, I'm a states' rights 
kind of guy, and I, I believe that you know individual states have the right to make their policy, but they also have to suffer the consequences, right? And, and, and it's unfortunate. I think somebody uh, was saying that they saw a sign uh, at, a, at, at a, a service station instead of uh, the price for regular and super and super uh, premium. It was, uh, the regular was, uh, you had to, it said arm. Uh, for the premium, it was leg, and for super premium, it was both, uh, or firstborn, right? And so, it, again, you know, uh, to bring a little brevity to it, and it's it's uh, it, it is uh, very unfortunate, um, and we keep seems like our policy. As I said yesterday when I spoke to the American Association of Blacks and Energy, amazing organization that's doing amazing things. It seems like our our energy policy kind of reminds me of the show Dallas. Uh, you know, remember the, the show Friday Night Dallas uh, was a really, really blockbuster show? Yeah, yeah. It seemed like for the longest time our energy policy was around who shot JR, right? Yeah. And so it seems like uh, some of our energy policy discussions uh, are just really just kind of out there. And again, you know, look, I think carbon capture uh, and storage gives us a great opportunity to do ama- some, some amazing things. Uh, I think LNG gives us an opportunity to do it. Uh, I realize that folks are concerned about the planet. I am too. I, I want to do that. But I think it all comes back to that word balance. Again, balance one of the most positive words in the English language, right? Work-life balance. Balance your checkbook. Even uh, on the back of a shampoo bottle, you got pH balance, right? PH balance. So, uh, so go figure all that out. And I, I just think we yeah. ought to try to start working towards balance. And to me, what does balance mean? Balance means a lot of things. But one thing I know it, it means, it's recognizing the historical contributions of our USA energy workers and rather than flipping them the middle finger and telling them to go on the bench and then we go ask OPEC to give us production, we ought to embrace our American uh, workers. We ought to embrace folks in the Permian Basin. We ought to embrace folks in the Gulf of Mexico, in Colorado, in North Dakota, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, wherever it may be, Alaska. And, 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 and let's go solve this problem and work towards a, 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 a maybe uh, evolution um, as opposed to just starting to unplug oil and natural gas from the portfolio. It's going to cause us tremendous, tremendous economic pain. It already has. And, um, and we believe, again, while we have better climate metrics in the Gulf of Mexico, it makes no sense to ask OPEC-producing countries that the Obama-Biden administration issued a federal report that said, if we, if we don't have lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico, we're gonna be forced to go to OPEC. And if you stop and think, the candidate, the candidate for, at that time, candidate Biden said in March of 2020, he reported on CNN that he was gonna shut down oil and gas drilling on his first day. Seven days after he took those of office, again, not being political, just being factual here, he, he began to cause uh, pause and cancel lease sales. So it shouldn't be a surprise that this is what's happening. I mean, it was announced that it was going to happen, uh, but it's unfortunate the results uh, led to exactly what that November Obama-Biden report said, that if we don't have lease sales, we're going to have to get foreign production. And so what did the president have to do? He had to you know, go to and visit with folks in OPEC-producing countries and say, we need you all to increase production. So again, we've all heard it's global warming. Uh, and, and again, I'm not an expert in that area, so uh, you know, I, I read what the experts say. They don't say it's USA warming, they say it's glo- global warming, and we got one atmosphere. So how is it better to go to OPEC that has poorer environmental metrics rather than getting that production? So, from USA. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other balance, the other notion is that um, 
most of the world suffers energy poverty. And without um, sharing the uh, environmentally sustainable practices that we pursue in oil and gas exploration production here in the United States, transferring that, as you said earlier, um, with uh, some of your um, international activities, um, that without doing that, we're going to continue to hold back people who, I mean, there are brilliant minds out there who are starving, basically, uh, who won't have the education that they need in order to make the contribution. I mean, we don't know where the next good idea is going to come from, but we know that it's not going to come from places where people are starving because they don't have the energy that they need to get the education and to pursue that. Yeah, you know, the old, old slogan, uh, you know, hungry child can't learn, right? Uh, it's difficult uh, with those situations. It seems to be almost a measure of arrogance, I would say, on our part, uh, you know, that we got ours and y'all on your own type deal uh, when we talk about energy poverty. So, yeah, we need to help uh, these other uh, countries uh, enjoy some of the quality of life that we have. When folks have uh, quality of life, uh, they tend to uh, have values that are similar to ours, right? And so that makes the place a safer safer place for our, for our young, young men and women uh, so that we don't have to send our, our military folks uh, to some of those places to create peace. Uh, and, and, and look, again, we feed, we feed the world on our farmers at USA Energy Workers, and we'd ask that folks visit our website at usaenergyworkers.com. It's non-political, it's fact-based, it's only designed to elevate and celebrate the contributions of our USA energy workers. I love the old the saying, the cliche, that if you can read, thank a teacher. I think it's so smart yes. that you know, our teachers deserve so much. At USA Energy Workers, Elena, we believe that if you can read at night in your warm home, thank a teacher and a USA energy worker. That's right. That's right. Scott, this has been a delightful conversation with you. We're almost out of time. Are there a few more thoughts you want to share before we close out? Yeah, just I would say, and again, I want to thank you for your amazing service to our, uh, to our nation and the continuing that, that service uh, in, in the next phase of your career there. Look, at the end, we would say um, things are changing. Uh, whether it's an energy transition or energy addition, folks kind of use those phrases interchangeably. We would say to America that the facts are clear, the facts are clear that the USA energy worker does it better than anybody on the planet. And while there are going to be discussions on how we reduce demand, until we reduce demand, our supply ought to be put together by the people who do it best. And that's our USA energy workers that are spread across uh, many states doing great work. And on their backs, we have enjoyed a really, really uh, good run until here recently where we started putting those people on the bench. Let's unleash the inspiration and dedication and perspiration of our USA energy workers. We'll help reduce pain at the pump. We'll help drive down those utility bills. We'll create jobs. And at the same time, we'll make the planet a healthier place. So certainly good to be with you. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank an energy worker today. Absolutely. 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 Yes. Oh, Scott, it's been just so delightful talking with you. We'll definitely have to catch, you, catch up with you again um, very soon. We'd love to. Thank you so much. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. <laughs>